Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm Elle and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hello, pod world. Welcome back. Thank you to our one listener out there. <laughs> and Sam the zookeeper. Hi, everyone. And really quick, before we announce our very special, special guest, uh, shout out to Justine Volker from Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, Justine. We appreciate your support. Anyways, now to our special guest. We are very fortunate to have the Honorable Mark Pearson, um, the first Australian member of parliament to be elected on an animal justice platform. And he was actually elected to the New South Wales Legislative Council in March 2015. We are so excited and so honored for him to give us even just an ounce of his time. So thank you so much, Mr. Pearson, for coming on the thank show. You. You're most welcome. It's a <laughs> uh, privilege. No, it's a privilege to have you. <laughs> <laughs> Quite contrary. So really quick, if you want to give, especially our listeners here in the States, since we are a U.S.-based show, uh, just a quick background on the Animal Justice Party and um, some of your legislation. Also, congrats on that recent victory of, you know, getting that inquiry into macropods. And for those of you that don't know, macropods are your kangaroos, wallabies, wallaroos. And um, Mr. Pearson was able to push a um, inquiry bill through and get that looked at by the New South Wales. Was it legislature? I get, I get uh, legislative right? Council. So it's a bit like... Legislative the Council, excuse yeah. me. So really, yeah, so the Legislative Council in the New South Wales Parliament, New South Wales is the largest, has the largest uh, population of any state in, in Australia, but the Legislative okay. Council is like the Senate, it's like the Upper House, the House of Review. So the government has Got control it. of the Lower House and they will mostly push bills through up to us and we can, we review them and we can block them, yeah, or pass gotcha. them. Gotcha. Right. Right. So Very in terms cool. of the Animal okay. Justice Party and how it started, it, it, it really began probably in about 2011, 2010. The idea, the concept, um, the, the inception of the idea of having a political party. And I think it was basically it was a few things came together. Um, the frustration with the, with the abuse of kangaroos in Australia together with live export and also Marianne Tima being elected in Holland um, in about 2010. I think she was elected, first person in the world to be elected into a parliament on an animal protection platform. So when I saw with others thousands and thousands of people coming to the main cities and smaller towns of Australia protesting about live export, and we're talking about sheep and cattle, not beautiful whales, and, you know, dogs and cats and, and wildlife for that matter. We're talking about the so-called dumb sheep and cattle, food animals. And thousands of people came. And when I looked at these people, we had the whole broad spectrum of the demographic of Australia. So you had the dreadlocks, tattoos and piercings, standing next <laughs> to a butcher, standing next to a member of parliament, standing next to a homeless person, standing next to, you know, a mem standing next to a doctor. And, and you could, I could see that this issue of animal protection and compassion for animals brought a whole broad spectrum of people together who would not normally stand together. And then it dawned on us, the time has come, to not just have petitions to parliament, protests in front of parliament, meetings with ministers or campaigns, get somebody in there 
to knock on the door of the members of parliament and the premier and the prime minister and speak directly for animals. So the time has come for a new uh, strategy, a new instrument to uh, protect animals. And look, we had no, we did not expect to get anybody elected for probably 10, 15 years because you have to build, you know, the standing of the party up. Right. But for some strange, well, we think we've calculated why, but a lot of factors came together, an expose of the greyhound industry and live baiting, live export, some pretty horrendous things happening to wildlife, and it all came together and so 780,000 people decided to put a one, two, three or four next to the Animal Justice Party and I managed to grab the last seat <laughs> and I'm still here and I have a colleague who was elected uh, two years ago. So this is not an overnight sensation in this party. We're here to stay. I have a question for That's you. That's great. So when you say live export, can you define that? To me, because I know that when I go to Costco, I get the Australian lamb and it's wonderful. I love it. It's delicious. Maybe you're in vegetarian. I'm not, I, I eat meat, but. Or we're uh, going to tell us that it, that should be a no-go. We're going to have to stop that. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by that uh, term? Can you explain that? Okay. So live export. So what you're eating is chilled carcass. So the the lamb is oh I don't know whether you're eating Australian lamb or not but if you are then yes for the yes that's what they the carry export. at Costco okay so the export <laughs> uh, the export to most countries um, is chilled carcass so the animal slaughtered here under our standards and regulations and the product is you know shipped over to you to eat but live export is mainly to the Middle East and Southern Asia to Southern Asia it's uh, cattle and to the Middle East it's mainly sheep, but some cattle as well. And essentially, these sheep are what you call spent wool sheep. So they're, so they're old sheep that have been used for wool production. And then when they no longer oh, become okay. productive for wool production, they get usually um, the owner of the animals will get a better price in Western Australia and part of Southern, Southern Australia to sell it to live export. They probably get about an extra 30 to 80 cents an animal. And but but this is a two to three week journey, and often the animals are coming from a winter here to the high summer of the Middle East. So you're looking at heavily wooled, heavily uh, uh, furred cattle um, in their winter coats, so to speak, and then they're put up onto a ship um, in incredibly uh, like basically a concentration camp on float, a floating concentration camp, two to three weeks, high mortality rate, but. If they arrive in Kuwait or um, uh, um, or uh, Oman in and they're breathing, then they get the money. But they only have to be breathing, what? and they just go off to slaughter. And, and what are they? Because they're just... you know, when 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 animals or people, for that matter, I head out from Australia two hundred nautical miles. Once they pass two hundred nautical miles, the jurisdictions of the, this country no longer apply. There are a whole lot of other jurisdictions, and in unfortunately at sea, there are virtually none to protect animals. Right. So, right, you've got international so you know, we've had a lot of Animals Australia and organisations had did a, did a lot of uh, intelligence and surveillance of what happens to these animals in the countries of, uh, of, of where they're received, in the countries of imp, um, import, and also some people who've worked on the ships have taken documentation of these horrendous conditions. So 87% of Australians are opposed to live export, but it's a perfect example of how three big companies 
with very good um, with with very very good um, uh, representatives are in the government's ear all the time, and so we can't. We're finding it very hard to turn this around, but we we will. Uh, so that issue galvanised all these concerns, and that's what we've made us realise. Okay, it might be time for a for a political party for animals. And it well, happens. here's here. This seems bizarre. If they're going to slaughter the animal once it gets there, why don't they just buy the product from you? Dressed, dressed and shipped and, and refrigerated and get there healthy. And it seems like the yield would be better if they did it that way. But I'm not sure what the incentive is for them to buy the live animal and kill it there. Well, there was a there was an argument to say that, well, it has to be killed halal, according to... Yeah, right. Oh, you can do that in, you can do that in Australia. We, we do it in Australia. And you I, have rabbis, you have Muslims, you have those people there. Right. So that, and then, of course, there was the refrigeration issue. Uh, that they argued. But Saudi Arabia and all those countries, they have refrigeration now. So we can send them over like what we do to America, slaughtered here, and we have problems in abattoirs in Australia. But when we have problems in abattoirs in Australia, they get shut down. The abattoir right. in Cairo just keeps going, even that thing. So, oh. so, yeah, so that was the main thing that actually, uh, I think that was when we saw that galvanising of people over a sheep, and over a cow, then we knew we were ready. Yeah. That's amazing. I wish we had. I wish we had y'all here. <laughs> in oh, America. Um, you know, we I'm, I'm, I'm going to come over when you know all these COVID restrictions are finished. We'll come over. Please and, do. You know, you've got you've got political parties growing in the United States for animals, um, and I'm happy to go over yes. because and, and, and together with there's, there's there is a uh, a branch of the Dutch Party for Animals which now has. About which now has about uh, eighteen people, I understand, either in local government or in the parliament or in the European Parliament. So it's growing, and it's going to take off in the United States as well. It's just it's autom- it's it's almost a natural progression um, that a political party will form and get stronger and stronger and stronger. And one day you'll be surprised, like I was, you pushed in, least expected. You go, what? How did that happen? I can't wait and, for that day. And can't that's wait. similar to what's just recently happened in the United States. You know, at the end of the day, the goodwill and of democracy comes through um, in the end, you know. So um, in your neck of the woods, are you, uh, you probably, you're, you know, you're not in a rural area where there's a lot of kangaroos. I don't know how far into the city or how, uh, they come, but I know that I'm sure that's a concern with your party. And uh, from what we've heard, you know, for, I forget if it was Auntie Roo or from somebody Auntie else. From Auntie yeah, Roe. They, Auntie Roe. Auntie Roe. The, uh, the, 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 they're shooting him and they're supposed to shoot him in the head and they don't shoot him in the head because they're not that good of a shot. And then they don't refrigerate the meat once they, yeah, they just uh, drive harvest around the animal. The they bush. just <laughs> haul him around in the hot bush and then bring him into the mm-hmm. abattoir or what we call slaughterhouse. And uh, I don't know, I don't even understand why the abattoir will take the meat in if they do a bacterial test on the meat and find out, you know, that thing's been sitting it's out there covered so long. Dust uh, and parasites. So, you know, uh, I, and I understand it's sold for human consumption. I, so, I understand it's sold for pet food. I understand it's sold for skins. But I, I think that- uh, How is you it know, worth it? Yeah, if, if, if the uh, abattoir has to be licensed- and somebody, if there's a government inspector certification, like here we have the USDA, mm. they they are in the assembly uh, in the food plants, mm. and they watch 
for they they they're not, they're getting like a half a second to look at an animal. Let's put it that way. But that's a different story. But they have inspectors that are looking for animals that have diseases and um, you know that are not fit for human consumption. Do they have that in Australia? Is there someone there at the slaughterhouse saying, no, I, we can't take this one in. The bacterial count is too high. You didn't refrigerate them. And it's, you know, you left, it's, it's rotted material right now. You have to put it in the garbage heap. Well, you see what happens with these wild animals. And this is the issue They're wild. I mean, when I first went to Europe to talk to the European commission about this issue, they were told by the government and the industry that kangaroos were farmed. We can't possibly farm a kangaroo because it's like trying to farm an elk or something, you know, like they're wild animals. And if they can't keep running or hopping, they will just crash up against the fence get high levels of acid in their blood, have paralysis and die. So they can't cope with confinement. So they're not farmed. So that was the first lie we had to unravel. But, um, yeah, so they're shot in the bush at night. Um, They're eviscerated, heads cut off, and then hung on the back of a truck. And the first kangaroo will be shot about 7 o'clock at night because they're nocturnal. The the shooter will then keep driving. And and temperatures in Australia in summer at night time can be up to 38, 36, 38 degrees. So you have a kangaroo that was shot at 7 p.m., bouncing around the back of a truck, um, uh, uh, stomach cavity open, dust coming in, dirt, and then the shooter does not have to be at the chiller until one hour after dawn. So that kangaroo can be there for 13 hours, hanging on the back of a truck. Oh, no. Then it gets put into a chiller and then it sits in the chiller, it can sit in the chiller for up to two weeks and then a truck comes, takes the kangaroo carcasses out of the chiller and then takes it one up to 1,500 kilometres to a processing plant in either the northern part of, uh, of Australia or the southern part of Australia, and the processing plant. So it's not actually an abattoir because the animal's already been slaughtered. So it's really just like the back end of an abattoir after the animal's been slaughtered. Now, the first thing we did was, well, the first thing I noticed back in, the, uh, in 2007, this was brought to my attention by a shooter, I said, well, look, we call him Kangaroo Jack. And I said, listen, mate, you've got to take us out and show us what you're describing. Because he said, this whole industry is completely out of control and shouldn't be doing human consumption. So I said, show me. Anyhow, he took me to a chiller, which had maggots crawling around the bottom of the doors. The door, it was an old shipping container, which was rusty. He opened the doors. The carcasses came bursting out towards you. None of them had reached seven degrees or less, which is a requirement in in, in there. So we decided to take swabs of inside of the carcass, get it tested, and we had high levels of salmonella and E. coli um, and feces. And so we did all this, got the tests, and and so my colleagues said, oh, great, now we've got all this documentation. We'll be able to convince the government to ban the trade and the industry to shut down. I said, no, no, the government will put this in a shredder. What we do is we go to Europe and we go to Russia and we show them what they've found. They're the importers. So we went to Russia, we went to Europe. And, um, and so Russia then did their own tests in Vladivostok when a shipment arrived. They found extremely high levels of E. coli, salmonella, feces, and antibiotic spray. That was very helpful. Um, and then they implemented a ban immediately, and they used to import 70% of, they were responsible for the export of 70% of kangaroo meat. So that was a big shock to the industry. 
And they've maintained that ban, Russia, since 2008. They lifted it a bit, but then it came back because they kept getting they, results. Yeah. Were they importing for human consumption? Yes. Wow. It's Russia. Yes, of course they were. They were taking the gourmet like steak parts and they were being sold at the gourmet restaurants in St. Petersburg or or Moscow. Oh, or, yes, this fancy kangaroo burger but, covered uh, in E. Yeah. coli. And the rest was ground into a paste and put into salami. Now they, do it. now they do it with spent dairy cows. Anyhow, we've got the kangaroo issue. Anyhow, the kangaroos are just being shot to almost extinction in Australia. It's just an utter, it's just an, it's a, it's an utter crisis and, and an international disgrace, what we've done. I mean, this is our code of, on our code of arms, this animal, you know. Yes. It's, it's, and Indigenous people see the kangaroo as their totem. Indigenous people who have the kangaroo as their totem, other Indigenous people have the woolly wagtail a bird or the goanna or the snake. So they have a totem, which means I, th- I can see the tail of your totem there wagging in the background. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, my totem auto, spirit, yes. A spirit animal. <laughs> so when um, you animal to a totem, you can't eat it. But other members of the tribe of your, of your people have to come to you and get permission for them to go and kill your totem to eat them. And they'll only take out the old boys and the old girls who are reaching the end of their time anyhow, and they might actually be having a bit of a more humane departure if they were left to die slowly. So that's their culture, and it's an utter insult to be going out there with these guys with guns and shooting down all these gorgeous animals. These are beautiful, soft, gentle herbivores, you know. They do no harm, but we certainly harm them. So finally, after six years, I've convinced my committee, which is the Environment Committee, of which I'm deputy chair, to agree, and even the most um, conservative on the committee uh, agreed to an inquiry, and the inquiry is going to kick off, uh, well, submissions are now being called for, and uh, that inquiry hopefully will recommend to the government that this this industry is no longer viable, um, it's no, lo- no longer worthy of a social licence because of the impact of the well-being on the animals, the hygiene issues, and the fact that this is a wild animal that um, that will breed up in a good season and will drop off dramatically in a bad season. It's not a, a, a certain uh, resource of, of, of protein or food. So, and, it's a, and also you keep shooting at it, the numbers are going to drop, and we have extremely low numbers of kangaroos now. So it's reached a crisis. Um, they're in peril, and thankfully this, um, I managed to get this inquiry up. So are, are, are they, uh, they kangaroos still perceived as a pest or are they now just like a wild animal? Like, for instance, here in the United States, if you want to hunt an animal, even a feral pig, uh, depending on the state, you have to get what's known as a tag. So you're paying for a fee to be able to hunt that animal and you buy a tag and you put it on that animal after you harvest it. And, and that's it. It's, you just don't go out willy nilly shooting animals maybe feral pigs are a different situation, uh, but um, you, you need a tag and uh, you pay the government for that tag. So what is the status right now of, of kangaroos? Are they still perceived as pests and you don't need to have any kind of Look, tag? It's another, it's another example of this, of this bizarre anomaly that happens. So it's um, so actually they're a wild animal protected by four legislations. In- and you're right. shooting them. 
and they're protected <laughs> because they're, they're a wild Australian native animal. But right. if they start to eat a bit of the grass that your cows and sheep, you want them to be eating, there's a conflict that arises, and often it's a perceived conflict because kangaroos really just want to hang out in the area and they might eat a bit of grass, but it's not the grass. The grass of choice is not the type that cattle and sheep want. But anyhow, there's this mindset that's developed in the agriculture industry, which basically says that they're, in, they're a competition, therefore they're a pest. So suddenly an animal that is a protected wild animal is now suddenly given another name. And, and when an animal's given this pest, noxious, unwanted, um, then uh, unfortunately that, it, that gives a licence for sociopaths to think they can go out and kill these animals and they've got uh, consent of the government. So, yeah, it's one of these really weird things where the kangaroo on one side of the fence is protected wild animal and on the other side is a noxious thing you must get rid of. Bizarre. So That's so weird. Like, that makes no sense. Like, why protect it then? Either protect it or don't protect it. Okay, like, so, I, so is like, there a way, ooh, like, here ooh, if an alligator same comes to like someone's that. property? Hold on, Dad, Dad, he's talking. He's I'm talking. sorry. Sorry, go on. No, I just... I just um, it's interesting that wolves were looked at in the same way in Yellowstone National Park yes. today, um, because yes. they would go and kill lambs or sheep or whatever, but actually they're a wild animal. They belong in the park, and I gather they had to be reintroduced to get the balance. They yeah. did. Yeah. Right. They did. Like because the, because the elk were killing all the trees, so they had to control the elk population with the wolves. So, yeah. yes, the, any, had to anytime you them. disrupt natural balance, it causes, uh, uh, what do they call that, unintended consequences. That's right. This so, is what happened in Australia. You know, the gentry brought the brought the, the foxes and the and the hares and the and the rabbits so they could go off hunting, you know, on Sunday afternoon and shoot a few foxes in the But when you introduce an animal to a country in which there is no natural predator, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, no, yeah, invasive species drive. Time, you know. But, of course, the Animal Justice Party, and this is where we come into conflict with environment groups, we're not a particular Animal Justice Party. We are the Animal Justice Party. So we actually fight for the rat, the fox, the kangaroo, the sheep. And so some people get, find it hard to get that around their head. I said, well, look, the fox is just a fox. It wants to live. It's as sentient as a dog. Um, and you we've brought it here, um, and it's flourishing, but we have to work out a way to look after it as well. Mm. Yeah. God, Sorry, I, I wish everybody you. thought like you did. I wish everybody thought the world would be. I know. We need more. We need more Mr. Pearson so in the world. So refreshing to hear. Yes. I have a quick question, Mr. Pearson. Sorry to cut you off, Sim. So I didn't realize greyhound racing was such a, a predominant uh, sport in Australia. Like, I mean, it's outlawed in 41 states mm. here. Um, I didn't, and I was just doing a brief, I looked it up briefly. I mean, they're killing what, like 7,000 healthy dogs a year. It's that prolific. Uh, <laughs> how, how has that been able to stay under wraps for so long? I mean, like I, again, I had no idea that you guys even had greyhound racing. I mean, it makes sense that you do, but then for it to be that it's, I mean, it's like basketball in America is what it, it seems like over there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it probably isn't as popular as that, but what, it, what, it, what it is, you see, it's, I think it's probably the same in America. It became the poor man, the poor people's uh, horse racing, yeah. in a sense. Okay. And, yeah. Right. And, and we actually, uh, when I was first elected, the premier had a meeting with me after a few months and was asking a lot more questions than what he did when I first got elected. He was just being polite, but he was really 
really trying to understand the animal movement, etc. And I'm thinking, what is this all about? Next morning, he announced a ban on greyhound racing in New South Wales. And what he was Yay. doing was garnering what kind of support will his government get? Very risky. Very risky because the greyhound industry, like the horse racing industry, are very powerful. Not as powerful as the yes. racing industry, but they're colleagues with the horse racing industry. And, of course, bet- of course. betting is very powerful. So, unfortunately, he was put under so much pressure, he had to step down as Premier and um, the bill the uh, bill to bring the ban was overturned. Now, interestingly, um, I think this is really quite interesting, is that that was back in 2015, just after I was elected. So I think that's what happens, and this is what the clerk said. When somebody's elected into Parliament and, it's, and, and um, people would say to me, oh, well, you know, you're just a one-issue party, you know, what are you going to do about um, abortion reform or immigration or asylum seekers? And I said, look, it's very simple. Whatever issue comes before us, if an animal is not going to be, if, if, the, if the bill or the legislation or motion or whatever it is, um, is not about, is not going to cause harm to an animal. And it's very interesting that many, uh, many, that many issues, education, health, actually have a connection with animals. So we can speak to that. But at the end of the day, there is no balance in the scale of what you have to uh, ascertain before the bell rings and you go down and vote, is the platform of compassion. Is it harming people? Is it harming the environment? Is it harming animals? Um, and we make the vote on that basis. And I said it's actually very easy for us to go down there and yeah. on abortion reform, on immigration, on asylum seekers, you know, on vaccinations, etc., because we apply that principle, you know. So Sure, sure. Uh, so, but the government, government, both the two governments that I've sat through, because I'm in the upper house, I, I'm in for eight years, and I, I'm there for two terms of government, two lots of four years, a bit like the Senate, I think. Um, yeah. Two issues that caused the main fractures in the current government were two animal issues. Greyhounds, so we had the the government um, in absolute, it was absolutely fracturing over that issue and had to drop it. And the other thing is koalas. So we had a member of the government cross the floor on a, on a bill that was going to co- allow people to remove more habitat of koalas. And yet one of the government members, through support from the Animal Justice Party, crossed the floor and the government Fantastic. lost the legislation, which would have caused more harm to koalas. So by being here, we're actually, br- our job is to bring even the most conservative, redneck, racist, nasty member of parliament across <laughs> to stand up for animals. And that's doable. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. How, that's so how great. are the koalas doing, by the way? I mean, I know they had a big uh, incident of, uh, is it face cancer or chlamydia? No, that's chlamydia. Face cancer Chlam- is the Tasmanian devil. Okay. Yeah. So how, how is the koala population doing? Do you know? Very, very badly. Because oh. you Especially see, after the fires. They, I mean, they used to, back about 80 years ago, they were, their pelts were sold around the world. So I'll, and Japan was buying their pelts, etc. But it was actually a campaign from Japan, which caused, ironically, which caused the stopping of the slaughter of koalas for their pelts. Um, so okay. that wiped out probably billions of them, um, or millions, and then billions who would have become afterwards. But so there's been, and so then, and then of course there's land clearing for housing development. There's mining. There's forestry, and they want to keep taking the trees, which are either uh, habitat 
um, trees or feed trees for, for koalas. So the numbers have dwindled, dwindled dramatically, but there is an incredibly powerful movement to protect them. And the fact that that bill, which was going to cause uh, make it possible for farmers and for developers to clear more land that the government introduced, it was blocked in our house by one of their own members. Well, we so, half the house. That, so it was. It would have been. Um, it would have been a locked vote, and the president would have had to have cast the vote, and that that would have been a conservative vote. So her crossing the floor and us working on it together helped save the koalas, but there's a lot more work to be done. Fantastic. So we're, here in the US, we have uh, this thing. If some, if uh, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, if a developer wants to go to the edge of sort of civilization and put a new development in. And if there's some environmental impact, not every state, but a lot of states will say, okay, you're, you're tearing out X number of trees and, and displacing X number of acres. You have to do what's known as an offset. So in other words, you have to go into another area and provide uh, an offset for these animals or trees, or you have to, if you're tearing out five acres of trees, you have to plant 10 acres of trees someplace. Do you have that type of a situation in Australia? Yes, we certainly do. And I, together with others, absolutely tear the tear apart the whole notion of offsets. So I said to a mining oh. company, it was right. I mean, the concern with this um, mine going ahead was was koala population loss and koala habitat loss, rather. And he kept talking, the mining company executive who we had to subpoena who didn't want to come to the inquiry, he kept saying, well, we're doing offsets. And I said, well, what's an offset? What is this offset? Oh, we're planting, planting those species of trees somewhere else for koala habitat and feed trees. And I said, well, how old are the trees? Oh, they'll be, you know, probably about two or three years old. And I said, well, you do realise koalas don't even go anywhere near these trees for feed or habitat until they're about 60, 70 years old. Uh, oh and, and so that's an acceptable offset. And I said, well, okay, are you going to give a little sort of map to the koalas where you're removing their habitat to show them how to get to the offset <laughs> in <six laughs> time if they're still around? So offsets are misleading and deceptive nonsense. Yeah, you've just yeah, you've just dispelled. You just shot right through that argument. So thank you for <laughs> dispelling that. And what what I think is important about that is, and this is why it's, this is why we have to revisit this and and really just knock out this offset notion altogether as being in any way um, credible as an argument. It comes from this environment movement that as long as you have some of the species there, you've got to protect the species. Protect that seems to be the most important thing. That is changing. Where our position is. Every individual animal matters, whether it's one or a hundred thousand. Each individual animal has its own life and interests, and that is important to us. Not to tell the world, oh well, we've still got five hundred koalas. We say, well, we have to look after the five hundred thousand that we have left, and we can't take refuge in this notion. Oh well, we're, we've looked after that species, and they're still they're still alive. You know, it's like this: keep it in a cage, and we're protecting the species. What's that? Nothing. So, yeah, we've got these interesting notions we have to grapple with. And offset, interesting. Um, you know, protection of species and habitat are, you know, some of the things we have to sort of work through. But, yes, when you shoot a kangaroo, you have to get a licence. You have to be a – if you're a shooter, you have to have a special training licence to shoot kangaroos. Now, we used to have 
a drop tag license, which you referred to. So if a, so if a sh- so a shooter gets his tags to shoot them for industry, whether it be live, uh, sorry, whether it be meat for human consumption or or um, or uh, pet food. Um, but farmers used to have to get a mitigation tag or a drop tag where you just shoot the animal because you believe it's in competition with your crops or your livestock and you just leave it there to die. But, I mean, in law, you have to shoot it cleanly, but um, not many farmers want to waste too many bullets on doing a coup de grace. So, but because of the pressure of the droughts and the farming lobby saying we have to get rid of these kangaroos because they're eating all the grass, which is all, it's all this myth that they go on about, the drop tag licence was revoked. So now farmers just have to pick up the phone, ring the Department of National Parks and say, look, I've got 300 kangaroos on my property. I want to get rid of 250 of them. Yeah, no worries, mate. Go for it. And they give an email, okay, but there's no tag for each animal. So we, ne- so after the bushfires, after the drought, um, and then this, um, and then, and then there's no longer requirement for drop tags. We don't know how many kangaroos are out there. So they could be killing 400 instead of 250 for all so, you know. <clears throat> here in the US, and maybe it doesn't, it, it may not make economic sense. Like if, if there's an alligator in somebody's front yard, they call the department of natural resources or wildlife or fishing game, whatever you call in that state. And they come and get the animal and they relocate the animal to another safe, a safer area away is, from humans. Is that possible? Okay. I mean, if you have 300 kangaroos, that's, that's a lot of trucks, but is it, is that possible to do that? Uh, or is that just too expensive and the government won't? Well, first of all, it's probably not necessary. If you, re- if we really look at it and we educate the farmer about how sometimes it's maybe a good idea to, it's a way of managing your land uh, in order to be able to live with, in uh, you know, wild animals, but or native animals. But um, it's very difficult to translocate kangaroos. You have to dart them, sedate them, you know, then transplant mm-hmm. them. Um, and I, I mean, I th- it is possible, but if you're looking at a mob, uh, it's probably completely impractical. Maybe five so, or right. oh, kangaroos. Are these kangaroos competing for the same grasses that no, cows No, he said they sheep? don't eat the same. They're no, not eating the same. Only in really bad drought, you know. So what will okay. happen is there's nothing else. So Well, right, yeah, and you're going to eat. You know, <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, when we decide, when you know, when we're hungry, we will eat things that we don't, wouldn't normally eat. But that's what happens. And that's when there's the competition. But that's still manageable without, you know, killing them. You know, what we need do is work on immunosterility programs, which is, so we've got wild horses here, which were introduced to Australia during the war. Um, and they're occupying a very sensitive national park called the Snowy Mountains National Park. And because of their hard hooves, they're doing damage to a very, very sensitive terrain. So there's this debate going on in the house cause, because many people find see the horses as part of their heritage, part of their history. So it's that interesting line, where do you say an animal is native and when do you say it's, it's introduced or it's, or it's not native? Right. And it's interesting, I asked an Indigenous elder, oh, listen, mate, when, when, when is an animal native? And he said, well, it's bloody born here, mate. So when mm. you look at the... You look, <laughs> it's fair. So we've been debating this for many years, and then one Indigenous elder says it in five words. Um, right. <laughs> that's from the Latin nate, birth. So if it's born here, it's Australian in their view. 
So that's it. So it's it's interesting this whole idea of introduce. So this this issue of horses has come up because many people. So the question is, well, how long does an animal have to be here before we consider it to be part of our heritage? And so that sure. question is happening. So, but with you guys in the in in Canada in the Rocky Mountains, you have a very sophisticated program that's been in place for a long time there, which was introduced by Jay Kirkpatrick, which is an immunosterility program for the wild horses of the Rocky Mountains, and it works. So rather than shoot them, you dart them, the mares mainly, and you might have to do it again in the next year and it renders them infertile so the numbers slowly come down but the horses keep the terrain, keep scent marking it so no other horses come in and it's the most sensible, intelligent and humane way of keeping numbers reduced of animals that are out of control perhaps um, because you just reduce the number, they keep the area in control. If you go down there, go in and do a Rambo operation and shoot them all, <laughs> it looks great. And you tell, oh, my God, we got rid of all the horses or got rid of all the foxes or got rid of all, all the rabbits. And then about months, six weeks, you see two little ears pop up. If there's food and water, they'll come from elsewhere. So it never really resolved the problem. It looks good for six months and then the problem's back again. Problem, if you want right. to call it. Well, in the U.S., they are still, unfortunately, with our wild horses. I'm going to have, oh, to, go. to, have to go shortly because I've got a meeting with a... Yep. Yes, right. absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. We'll let you go. Um, but yeah, in the U.S., they, they, do, they are starting to cull wild horses in the U.S. again, which is really not good. Right. So I hope that they've adapted that. Yeah. But um, well, thank really you so much. What we're is that you've got a, a bill in Congress, which is getting more and yes. more support from congressmen. Um, yeah. and the imports of kangaroo products. It's causing a crisis for the industry in Australia. Good. You know, I've done Good. numerous interviews. They're all worried. But it's making them think about the issue again because of the international pressure, which came from right. Europe is now looking. They've done their own tests of kangaroo products. They're very close to a ban. So if Europe ban and you ban, then the industry it's done. Maps, finito. Perfect. And then we're forcing the forcing the government and the um, environment management. Absolutely. We certainly appreciate your time. Thank you so Thank much, you. Mr. Pearson. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you again so much. Thanks um, for the work you do. Yes, and thank you for everything that you do. Yep. All right. Cheers. Uh, of course. Yes. All. Yes. Thank you so much again, Mr. Pearson. And we'll see you guys next week. Goodbye, Alrighty. everyone. Bye bye. Well, Otto, do you approve of this week's episode? <laughs>